Do you really, really believe in hell? There is a place, a dark place, where ancient evil slumbers and waits to return. In the absence of light, darkness prevails. There are things that go bump in the night, make no mistake about that. And we are the ones who bump back. is now playing's Hellboy Retrospective Series. World, here I come. Hosted by Jacob. Didn't I kill you already? Stuart. Remind me why I keep doing this. Rotten eggs and the safety of mankind. Huh. And Arnie. The good. The bad. And the worst. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and hellish language. Suck my ectoplasmic schwanstocher. Listener discretion is advised. Come on, Jack. Let's go fight some monsters. Today we're discussing Hellboy, starring David Harbour. Mila Jovovich, Ian McShane, Sasha Lane, Daniel Day Kim, and Thomas Hayden Church, directed by Neil Marshall. This is the now playing co-host who relies on jokes as a way to normalize, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the host who deserves a 2,000-foot-high statue in my honor made with the bones of my enemies. Jacob. You have a lot of enemies, I take it. <laughs> I do. Make it 3,000 feet. <laughs> Every Aquaman listener, apparently. <laughs> Well, we're here at a different comic franchise. We're back at Dark Horse with Hellboy. 11 years after Hellboy 2, without Guillermo del Toro, we get, I guess I would call this a soft reboot. They don't want you to totally forget what had been done before, but it won't be in continuity. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it a soft reboot. It's just a reboot. It's starting over. The origin's a little bit different. I mean, they got to stick to the things that are in the comic book, more or less. But yeah, this totally different vibe, totally different feeling than those Del Toro ones. Did Hellboy 2 not do well? Because I can't remember the conversation we had a few years ago. But I know there had been talk for years. Everybody wanted Hellboy 3. They wanted Guillermo back. They wanted Ron Perlman back. When you say everyone, you mean everyone that saw Hellboy 2. Okay, so that's answering my question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it did not do well compared to the budget it had. It had more of a budget than the first one. That first one was moderately successful. That's where we got the second one. That second one did not make its money back. And yet it's the better film. It is. I'm just going to lay it on the line. Hellboy has never been a hit. $23 million in America for the first one. $34 million for the second. That's not opening weekend. That's total gross. And yet, number three, it might be lucky to hit those numbers domestically. But that said, it is hard to imagine this franchise for me that has never seen a comic or wouldn't even necessarily know that it was based on a comic if I wasn't on the show with you guys. It's hard for me to imagine it without Guillermo del Toro. And certainly you would think after winning the Oscar for Shape of Water, he would have the clout to be coming back and saying, I am doing this. 
and you're going to let me. Instead, he's off remaking Pinocchio for Netflix. I can't think of something I'd want to see less than that. Wasn't The Shape of Water just an Abe Sapien piece of fanfic anyway? (laughs) (laughs) Slash. Yeah, slash fic, maybe. (laughs) Well, a lot of this happened before Guillermo won his Oscar. Back in 2017, I remember, Jacob, you saying Mike Mignola, the creator of the Hellboy comic, said, hashtag not my Hellboy, right? His comic is his comic, and Guillermo's vision did not jibe. Yeah, and for those that didn't read the comic, Guillermo del Toro's vision, I love it. I love what he did. It is different than the comic book, though. And I remember seeing Mike Mignola at panels at Comic-Con, and he would kind of make little comments about changes they made, and he didn't seem pleased with it. Well, back in... 1617, Mignola directly worked with the writer of this film, Andrew Cosby, who is creator of Boom Comics. He launched the entire comic company. Okay, he also did the sci-fi show Eureka, if you remember that. It was kind of Twin Peaks of the New Millennium. I vaguely remember the name. I never watched it. But they were working together on a sequel that would bring Hellboy back to Mignola's vision and hopefully box office prosperity, and they offered Guillermo, and again, this was 2017, an honorary producer's title just to get Ron Perlman back in the makeup. Oh, so they did want Ron Perlman. Yes. How could you not want Ron Perlman? You know, I think a lot, because this has gotten awful reviews, I think a lot of it's because people just loved what Del Toro did, and this is a different direction we'll talk about, but Perlman, come on, you might not get Del Toro, but get Perlman back in the suit. I mean, this is totally subjective, but when I went and saw Us recently with a friend, this trailer came on, they're like, oh, I love this, I want to see it, and then like 30 seconds in, they're like, wait a minute, that ain't Hellboy, and they're like, I ain't seeing that, like they felt betrayed. Like they were being tricked into seeing an artificial Hellboy. The funny thing is they released a photo still of David Harbour in the Hellboy makeup and everyone's like, it just looks like Ron Perlman. We'll talk about what happened when that got on screen. But yeah, that was the initial response. Why didn't you just get Ron Perlman? It looks like the same character. It looks like him already in that makeup. Well, Ron Perlman wasn't getting back in the makeup unless Del Toro was behind the camera. He has allegiance to Del Toro for that. I mean, keep in mind, he's followed Del Toro to Pacific Rim as well. I mean, he's Del Toro's buddy and was not going to do this. And it was going to be just called Hellboy, Rise of the Blood Queen. And it was going to be the third installment in continuity when they realized Realized Perlman wasn't coming back, Del Toro wasn't coming back, they hired Neil Marshall as director. They're like, all right, let's just reboot this whole thing. It is Hellboy 2019, and it's going to be darker, more gruesome, hard R-rated. Yeah, I think that was clearly the thing that they were pushing was, and I didn't realize that. When I saw the first Hellboy back in 2004, I thought, wow, this was an R-rated movie. And then I was like, oh, no, it's only PG-13. I came into this one thinking, well, they've got to be shooting for the same PG-13 audience. I'll tell you the scene where I realized there's just no way that this could be. Oh, there's, yeah. There's definitely a, yeah, a scene. I think I know which one you're talking about, but that was one of the big things. They're like, oh, we're going R-rated. I'm like, okay, maybe they could go a little bit more gruesome with all the different monsters. Again, Del Toro's vision was more of a fairy tale, and I think, yeah, they wanted to go in that different direction where they could be a little bit more gruesome. I remember the Red Band trailer came out, and you could hear them say the F word if that's a thing you want to hear Hellboy say, but yeah, they definitely wanted to push that this is a harder edge, and this director, Neil Marshall, he's a horror guy, right? You know, here's the thing, like, 
I like The Descent, but that was 14 years ago. I mean, that's even longer than Hellboy 2. This guy ain't, like, hot off of anything. I couldn't see that his movies ever made any money. I think The Descent is his biggest film, right? Because I've seen one other one of his, Dog Soldiers, which is like a werewolf military movie, and I get why it has a cult following with people into horror and that. It wasn't great, but I, I could see the appeal there. But he has been doing a lot of television. It seems if you've directed Game of Thrones, they want to throw movies at you. Okay. He did a couple episodes of Game of Thrones. He did an episode of Westworld, a couple of Lost in Space. So he's done prestige television. He's also worked on films. And it begs the question, why is this coming back as a movie? When, yeah, it seems like TV is hotter than the movies. And their star, the new Ron Perlman, also a TV guy. I don't know David Harbour. I saw two episodes of Stranger Things. I don't even remember him in it. Like, he wasn't the focal point. Yeah, he's one of the big characters. I think more in the second season. I've watched both seasons. I don't know if he's been in it. I'm sure he's been in other stuff. I don't know anything else except Stranger Things when it comes to David Harbour. I didn't recognize him underneath all that makeup. I actually thought they had like a teenager or 20-something under there because of the long hair and everything. I thought he looked really, really young. But, I mean, we've talked about movies he's been in. I mean... Suicide Squad, he was Tolliver in that. Who? One of the military guys. Uh, yeah, Arnie, my <laughs> point is that what they're hanging their hat on, who we should be excited about, are people that have made their name in TV. And because I haven't watched these shows, I came into this movie with zero expectation. I want to say I wasn't against it. I had read the bad reviews, but I'm not going to turn against it because Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlman aren't involved. They've made bad movies. I'll be honest. I, there's been many of their films I have not enjoyed Crimson Peak. So <laughs> if, if a new director has a vision, I'm okay with following that new vision. I agree. I was a little disappointed at first just because I know it was a passion project for Guillermo. It wasn't about the money. He had a story to tell. He wanted to finish his trilogy. A lot of time has passed, and I don't know if they could have gotten all of the cast back together. You know, Selma Blair is having some medical problems. I think they would have had trouble following with her pregnancy twin storyline. Yeah, I, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Plus, I haven't seen David Hyde Pierce act since Spam a lot. So I don't know if we could have continued in that same vein, but I was open to this new vision. I saw this at 5 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon because I was at Star Wars Celebration, and I just want to thank probably 25 or more now playing listeners who approached me at the show and said they enjoy the podcast. Thank you for those kind words. But on a Tuesday afternoon, I went in knowing that there were unkind things being said about it. But I'm like, you know, I enjoy Hellboy in the previous movies. I've read a couple itty-bitty Hellboy comics, and that's about it. Itty-bitty meaning it's basically Hellboy Muppet Babies. Yes, he's very cute. My eight-year-old loves those comics. <laughs> They're making the same mistake. I mean, we talked about 2008. Part of the problem of why Hellboy 2 maybe only made $34 million was it was a summer of big superhero movies. Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, Dark Knight. It got lost in the shuffle well putting it out sandwiched between shazam and endgame it felt foolish i know they wanted to put this out in january which would have been perfect but i think they said the effects weren't done which i'm not sure if they ever I got still it hope they are yeah <laughs> but anyway i'm not saying that they weren't planning for a better release but this seems like a particularly bad time to release this film 
It came in number three. Shazam held number one for a second weekend. Yeah, both big ripoffs beat it at the box office. There's also this movie Little about like a woman turned into a child that kicked its ass. And strangely, I know nothing about Little except we talked about it during Big and Shazam. I never saw a trailer for Little. I never saw a review of Little. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't even know this Little movie exists. So the fact that it beat Hellboy, I got a text from Jacob. By the way, there's two stinger scenes in Hellboy, one in the middle and one at the end. I'm like, yeah, those are setting up sequels that will never happen. I knew that going in. (laughs) Yes. It is in the air. Sometimes we can only speculate, but because we're taping this, releasing it a week late, we all know this has been deemed a big box office bomb. Who knew that releasing a movie about a demon right before Easter would have flopped? I just can't imagine. Yeah, a hard R-rated movie (laughs) about a demon. I mean, again, the fact that they even conceived it for the big screen, given that he's such a cult figure, I I feel like a sci-fi TV show or something is where this character is going to excel. It doesn't seem like he has the big appeal. The only thing I could compare him to, and I'm sure it must have been on their mind, is Deadpool. If he can be as irreverent and R-rated and funny as Deadpool, then maybe it can have that kind of gross. But then maybe it can have that kind of gross. But they're comparing two very different things in the end. The other thing is they kept the budget on this clamped down. They estimated spent $50 And let me tell you, the lack of money is on the screen. (laughs) Those effects you referenced. Yep. And I'm not going to say... 100% we couldn't get a sequel because we've seen those films that bomb here but do so well in China and then the sequel comes. Absolutely. Alita Battle Angel is a big hit, by the way. Who knew? Yeah. So the fact that in just U.S. overseas yet, it could make its money back. It could even be a profitable film for Lionsgate. Yeah. Well, we're here to review this movie and, and not speculate on the future. Arnie, give him the plot and we'll talk about Hellboy 2019. At the end of World War II, Hitler's Nazis tried to summon a demon to help them win the war. They were stopped by Lobster Johnson, a superhero Nazi killer played by Thomas Hayden Church. Oh, can't wait to talk about it. He was not somebody I was expecting to be seeing in the theater this weekend. Uh, neither was I. My favorite Hellboy character... Couldn't believe he showed up in a movie. Already a recommend. But the demon they summoned was a devilish baby with a brick hand, horns, and a tail. A group of demon hunters led by Professor Trevor Bruttonholm have been killing demons worldwide, but at the sight of this baby, Bruttonholm decides to raise this Hellboy as a son. We then jump to modern day, and Hellboy is played by David Harbour. His father, Bruttonholm, played by Ian McShane, has founded the government organization the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense, or BPRD for short, and Hellboy is one of his agents. Things go to hell, though, when a pig-like fairy named Gruagich wants revenge on Hellboy for a previous attack. And to do this, he raises Nume, played by Mia Jovovich, the blood queen who tried to destroy the world until stopped by King Arthur and Merlin. Her body was dismembered and parts spread across England, but Gruagich gets the pieces and puts the Blood Queen back together again. Hellboy tries to stop this with the aid of Alice Monaghan, a psychic medium played by Sasha Lane, as well as Ben Damio, a were-cheetah played by Daniel Day Kim. Damio doesn't trust Hellboy, and so he carries a special bullet that can kill the half-demon. 
The Blood Queen, however, doesn't want to kill Hellboy, but rather partner with him. She kills Grigich and tries to convince Hellboy that together they can make the world a safe place for demons by killing all the humans. When he refuses, she kills Brutenholm and unleashes a plague upon England. It turns out, though, that Hellboy is half-human, and, wouldn't you know it, the last surviving descendant of King Arthur. As such, he's able to wield Excalibur and behead the Blood Queen. Seeing that Hellboy can be trusted, Damio throws away his Hellboy killing bullet, and Damio, Hellboy, and Alice become a new squad of BPRD continuing without Bruttenholm, and they discover a tank containing Abe Sapien as credits roll. That's my first impression coming into this movie, is I wasn't sure... I never even thought, does Hellboy have a different crew? I just pictured it was always Hellboy and Abe Sapien and the ones we saw in the movie. Here, we got Brutenholm. We got Hellboy, but they're going to replace the crew. So I think that's a good way to go about it. Yeah, I felt like they definitely wanted to set themselves apart. Again, if you've read BBRD, you know who Damio is. Alice shows up. You know, this is mostly based off... This is what blew my mind when I was reading all the production stuff, is that they were going to adapt the storyline, The Wild Hunt, which is like the beginning of the end of Hellboy. If you're with the comics, it all ends with Hellboy in Hell. Like, that's the name of the series. But, like, there's only a couple more story arcs before Hellboy dies in the comics when you get to The Wild Hunt. Like, this ramps everything up. This is where you find out he's a descendant of King Arthur. It's just blowing my mind that they were going this late into the mythology to adapt a new film, a, a reboot. And we've always seen this symbol for the BPRD. It's a hand holding a sword. I never gave it much consideration but this is not something new for this film. It has always been of the idea that Hellboy is a descendant of King Arthur that is Excalibur in the symbol. Mm, no, I don't think it is because the BPRD has always had that symbol in the comics. I don't know if Mignola came up with this idea that early on, so I think it's a happy coincidence. Okay, or maybe he was trying to come up with a backstory for a symbol he thought was cool and couldn't justify previously. But certainly when they begin the this movie, that's the first person we meet. King Arthur and Merlin are riding in. It's the Dark Ages, 517 AD, and they're riding up to this hill to surrender to the Blood Queen because humankind, all the Britons, have been dealing with an invasion of monsters. Yeah, th I think this is their excuse for the Black Plague. It's actually this Blood Queen has, you know, releasing this plague. Yeah, you know, they recount a lot of the stuff from the Golden Army, where it was fairies and humans and they couldn't get along and the fairies kind of went away. Here, they're more or less doing that same storyline, I feel like. It's just, it's just how it looks is different. It's, yeah, there was humans and witches and demons and fairies and goblins and they couldn't get along, so one had to go. Yeah, and certainly when you look at this time that there was a lot of invasions happening in England. There's all the Saxons invading, but it has been popular to look at that conflict through the lens of monsters. If you look at Beowulf or what have you. Here, I don't think this is a metaphor for anything. I think it's just the clash that has always been the subtext of Hellboy movies. The world of monsters and fantasy butting up against the world of the humans. And there'll be a character that comes from both worlds. How will he rectify his lineage? When we start off with King Arthur, all I could think about is how much King Arthur we have had in movies lately. It just feels like, first of all, Aquaman. But then also, the kid who would be king, Transformers The Last Knight, King Arthur Legend of the Sword. I mean, it just feels like somebody really wants to make King Arthur a thing in theaters. It's public domain. It's free. Yes. 
That would be my guess, is that we don't have to pay anybody for a character that everyone knows. Or presumably everyone knows. I gotta say, though, during this opening, like, I went in, I saw that 13% Rotten Tomato score, and during this opening, you're getting this kind of data dump stuff that I typically don't like. It doesn't look good. And I'm like, oh, no, this is gonna be bad. This is why it's 13%. Like, this opening scene really worried me. It worried me as well. I mean, it is a data dump. It's talking about a Blood Queen and Merlin and King Arthur and something. There's another witch that like betrays her and I guess she comes back. Exactly. I have no idea what the betrayal was or why the betrayal occurred. What did this other witch get out of the betrayal? And I figure that it's going to be this other witch who's the villain now, right? Because she betrayed the Blood Queen and so now maybe she's the Blood Princess or something. I don't know, but it's putting a lot in here. I thought also maybe Merlin was a traitor. I have no idea which way this is going. It turns out I'm overthinking it. It's really not that big a deal, but they seem to muddy it up. Part of my trouble focusing is that I didn't recognize Mila Jovovich. How could you not recognize her? I thought it was Eva Green, who is like Tim Burton's go-to leading lady. And I don't know. She just, if if it's not being directed by someone named Paul W.S. Anderson, I don't (laughs) think she works. So I just, I couldn't imagine her booking a gig that didn't involve her husband. If it makes you feel any better, I didn't recognize her either. I'm staring the whole time. I'm like, did they get Kate Blanchett or put a black wig on her? Who is that actress? I knew she was familiar. And they're doing some visual trick here too, where it's all in black and white, but she's in this red robe. So really, all you're paying attention to is the color red, which is the blood flowing out of her and the robe, and you just miss her. I recognized her just because I knew she was in this, and I didn't go through that whole Resident Evil series that you guys did. Like, my last memory of her is probably like the fifth element. I'm like, am I going even be able to understand her I gotta say she's much more uh I can understand her now like (laughs) that accent is not as thick as I remember it being it's not even present in the Resident Evil movie she's very intelligible okay (laughs) I just think of her always having an accent probably because of Fifth Element where she talks weird but she's hacked up we see that her blood go into the tree we see all the monsters go away and we see her body divvied up in six different crates being ridden off by six different horsemen and so we know the setup for this film it will be a treasure hunt to reassemble this blood queen and i guess release a plague again but where we go like the next scene the first big surprise for me and huge smile on my face is tepid as i was just like seeing this opening scene like oh no this is gonna be bad they not only adapted the wild hunt they also adapted when hellboy was a lucador wrestler in mexico like this is a storyline where he wrestled vampire lucadors and they go monster hunting like yeah our shot of hellboy is him getting drunk in mexico and having to fight a what another bprd agent that they've lost track of yeah this is what tells me this is a soft reboot and not a total reboot because if you were totally rebooting this you would not have a character that is well integrated into the force you would tell an origin for hellboy and we would see him first meeting papa and all of that stuff here he's going down to tijuana to see his friend esteban and yeah it's a joke that's telegraphed but still very funny of he was supposed to be investigating a cult of vampires and disappeared three weeks ago why isn't he getting back to me well of course it's because he's a vampire now and they find that out in the middle of the lucador match But I guess, yeah, what you call a soft reboot is kind of what I do, too. Looking at The Incredible Hulk. The Incredible Hulk is a reboot of Ang Lee's Hulk, but they don't retell the origin story and things so that you could just kind of go with it and not tell the same story again, a la Amazing Spider-Man. But... 
I know because, again, the crew is different. And also, we hear Hellboy getting this order from Brutenholm, Ian McShane. Brutenholm is alive. He, he died in that first movie, and he's much younger now, played by Ian McShane, another big television actor, American Gods. I'm really looking forward to seeing him in John Wick 3 this summer. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I saw the John Wick 3 trailer during this. I'm like, oh, I'm going to see him in a few more minutes. Yeah, I always think of him for Deadwood, but I don't think he's any younger than John Hurt at all. Well, John Hurt was playing much older, though. He was playing little old man Gray beard old. Yeah, the way Brutenholm is played in this, it's it's the whole attitude of the film. Like, we're going to be younger and edgier, and McShane just has a different vibe than John Hurt does. I like McShane. I like this opening. I, I even like this actor playing Hellboy. But I have to say, it throws me for a loop that everything that we see here has no bearing on the plot that follows. I thought for sure vampires or this character would continue on, that he would end up coming back with Hellboy, joining the adventure. But no, he is going to be impaled on the ring and die. All of this was just so that we could get a Spanish language cover of the Scorpions Rocky Like a Hurricane, <laughs> I think. Well, I think what they're trying to show is like, here's Hellboy. He has to kill one of his own. That's going to be the conflict throughout the film. Again, it's very Golden Army from that second Del Toro one. It, it's a very similar conflict. I just don't think the characterization is as good in this film. So you kind of forget like what was the point of that. But I think that's supposed to be something lingering on Hellboy's mind that he had to kill a human and yet the humans don't really care about killing the supernatural stuff. Yeah, it felt to me like the first half an hour of this film was very scattered. We're hopping all over quite a few things from vampires to, I'm sure we'll talk about the giants to everything else. It felt like a greatest hits of the comic. Like, people who've read the comics are going to love seeing this incarnation of the vampire, Lucha Libre, and maybe know the giant stuff. But to me, what hit me was that Rock You Like a Hurricane song, because I realized my entire thought when I said Hellboy looks young, it was that he looks like 80s hair metal to me. And then they're really going to lean into that with the music here. Oh, yeah. We're going to get some Motley Crue. It's weird because at one point we see his room and I swear I saw like a Sonic Youth poster. Look, I love Sonic Youth. I grew up listening to Sonic Youth and that's why I didn't listen to hair metal. It's two very different genres, what Sonic Youth does and what Motley Crue does. All right. I'm going to interject here because it is an opportunity here to do something very different than what Guillermo del Toro did. And since he's not coming back and we're not finishing the trilogy as it was conceived, I have to ask, again, I have no problem with David Harbour. I don't even know who David Harbour is. He comes off in this movie like John Goodman. I feel like his facial expressions and expressions feel very much played the way John Goodman comes off in a Coen Brothers movie. But if he's Hellboy, why is it being played by a middle-aged man? That seems like a big mistake. The only reason why they went with Ron Perlman was because Guillermo del Toro loved Ron Perlman, but Ron Perlman was too old for the part of Hellboy. This guy certainly is too. I'm not sure I'm following you because Hellboy, he ages differently because he's a devil. And I don't know. It, it is weird trying to, is he a, got a teenager mentality here? Because it is being played by an older man. So I can see where you might get confused with that. I don't know. I just, it's just a nickname. 
name. So, yeah, he's always going to be called Hellboy, no matter how old he is. Well, this story specifically, they don't give Hellboy a romantic storyline. That was a big part of the first two movies. And this, it is purely about his relationship with his father figure, which to me says, along with the name Hellboy, you need to play it young. And I was just thinking about all the like English actors in their 20s that would be up for this. Daniel Radcliffe or, you know, what's Kick-Ass doing these days? Daniel Radcliffe could never be this built. Yeah, that that's the thing. Like, if they want to go for that iconic Hellboy look, you can't get some 20-something British waif <laughs> in this costume. All right. You guys are married to the comic book, and I'm trying to reconceive this in a new way because I have no association with that comic book. And I think if... What Guillermo del Toro was so specific, and you're rebooting it, you want to do something that doesn't look like that, and you want it to feel different. And again, if he's having all this conflict with his, he's still going to call him dad. This all happened in the del Toro stuff, though. You might have forgotten. No, I didn't forget. Ron Perlman was too old to be doing that stuff, which is why all the focus was on the new guy in the love triangle with Selma Blair, because the dad stuff didn't make any sense. And here, it really doesn't doesn't make sense seeing a man that should be a father himself trying to say act like a teenager i had a problem with that too i really did and it's just that i don't understand i found myself thinking in the movie would he ever become hell man you know right. Yeah, he does not seem to be boyish. He does not seem to be in a state of arrested development. He does not seem to have an adolescent mindset. He will have some coming to terms with his past and his birthright in this movie, but that doesn't make him a boy any more than people having the same kind of existential crisis in their 20s or 30s. I did think Hellboy seemed like a misnomer for this incarnation. Whereas I did not have a problem with Ron Perlman, though. So that's a dichotomy I'm still trying to bridge. I, maybe just because I'd lived with Ron Perlman as the character that that was my vision of it, and now I'm seeing a new vision and it's making me question. And here's one thing that I like that this movie is doing that I'd never got a sense of with Del Toro. But when he gets this mission to go to London and there's all of these British details, I suddenly feel like this whole series feels kind of like a Terry Gilliam movie or a Monty Python skit. And that there's something about it that feels very distinctively Anglophile. And there was so much about the version that felt Americanized in del toro's realm you know particularly with the agent they brought in in the first movie here because so much of it is going to happen in london yeah we're here in colorado for a, for a second and we went to mexico but by and large i feel like you play into this you make hellboy the actor british and you play into the whole British notion of things because it has that kind of British sense of humor. And I don't mind it being an American bumping up against you know those British sensibilities that you get that fish out of water stuff. Not that they mine any of that kind of humor for this movie, but yeah, you want to introduce someone that's new to this world so they could comment, I guess, on what the British are doing. I felt like they put this one in England just to differentiate it from the others. I think because it's King Arthur, they gotta put it in that setting. They're gonna find his tomb. It'd be weird if it was in New York. Well, no, no, no. 
I'm thinking they have King Arthur because they put it in England, not they put it in England because they have King Arthur. Well, this is all based off the comic, so I think that's why it's here, because if you're going to have King Arthur, it's got to be in England. Yeah, and again, I think that if Hellboy is a descendant of King Arthur, there should be a tie to him being British in some way. Again, Tom Hardy could have played this if he hadn't already done Venom. There's, there's just people that I feel like would really be right for this that would bring a British flavor and flair to it. No offense to David Harbour. Again, I like his performance okay. I don't think he has a lot to play off of. I don't think the characterization is written as strongly. He's fine. I just see opportunities missed in trying to reboot him. If that is indeed what they wanted to do, they fail at that. I'll say this. One, I so want a Tom Hardy Hellboy movie now. Thanks, Stuart. <laughs> but two, I do feel like a lot of what Harbor is doing is he watched what Perlman did and <laughs> tried to deliver lines pretty similar that, you know, that sense of sarcasm. And yeah, I feel like he's just trying to do Perlman here. I agree. I don't feel he has differentiated himself from Perlman's characterization enough to where I see a huge distinction. There's more back hair. Yo, that was gross. Well, I'm just saying, but here's one thing I'm going to throw out, and I know I'm not going to get a lot of support for it, but I feel like this is one thing I really wanted that does not happen. Guillermo del Toro nailed the whole Rasputin, Nazi, satanic vibe. Don't make that the origin story this time. Do not go to World War II. It doesn't make any sense that Broom is still, and all these people are still there, and they're not aging, and it's been 80 years and yet they look the same as they did in 43 stop all of that and just reboot him i don't know there were lots of if it's harbor and you're going to make a middle-aged well then there was a satanic cult like manson in the 60s or 70s but you could even do that today you could have it the neo-nazi movement of today and make hellboy only a couple months old and again have it being played by a really young actor he was really young in hellboy 2 if you remember it opened with that howdy doody bit you could have a movie like that and i would really connect with his relationship with dad and since all of this is about the way dad treated him when he was supposed to kill him when he first comes out here i think it's again i just think having a middle-aged actor is a mistake i mean talking about his origins it's weird like you get rasputin again he's never going to show up in the rest of the film don't do it again see i was really confused because they start talking about at the end of the war and i'm like Okay, well, it's now 2019. Which war are they talking about? I mean, obviously, they do that in the comic, right? And they're not varying from the origin story as it was laid out in the comic. Yeah, it was World War II and this satanic ritual that the Nazis were doing that brought Hellboy to Earth. And I loved that, but I loved it in Guillermo's vision. And if you're doing something else, I mean, they, we get subtle differences. Like, there's that Cronin guy, the guy with the gas mask, and he's not a robot. They're going with the comic book version and not the Del Toro steampunk version but at the end of the day i'm comparing what i'm looking at to what i already saw and thinking yeah this doesn't look as good it doesn't make as much sense and i'm trying to let this be as much of its own thing look they're winning me over by doing that wrestling stuff that i loved in the comic and with this retold origin they're going to introduce a new character my favorite side character besides hellboy lobster johnson who is just less like pulp adventurer that has a lobster claw that like heats up and he could brand people or burn them or melt them like so there's a lot of fan service for fans of the comic in this even though it, it yeah it doesn't have that del toro flair they are trying to pull new things in and i like that as an idea but it feels like an idea that is like many of the new ideas here underutilized like all right if you're keeping it in world war ii 
have Lobster Johnson be the only one, and he's going to be the one to meet Hellboy, and then Broom will come later, and we can tell the Broom story later. But I just, they blow him in here just so he can shoot Rasputin and, and put his claw print on his forehead, and then he's gone until the stinger at the end. I just, what was this about? I got nothing out of it other than, damn, how Thomas Hayden Church, I, again, was not expecting him. And my instant thought is, Sandman. <laughs> you can't see his face, but I knew it was him just from that voice. Oh, absolutely. He has a very distinctive voice. and I mean, I know him primarily from Wings, but he was great in Sideways and so many other things. But that said, all this griping, again, all I'm really trying to do, I'm not saying I'm having a bad time. What I'm doing is I'm saying I'm seeing the same movie as before. And I wondered why they made that choice. Other than, again, maybe they're not trying to totally erase the other movies from your mind. If out of continuity, they at least acknowledge that you must love them if you're sitting in this movie theater. That the love of the previous movies has brought you here. And we won't want to do anything that upsets that feeling for those old movies. And my thinking was, this isn't a reboot. They're sticking with the comic story. They're showing us the comic story very quickly. As we've already mentioned, it's not like the first two films became iconic blockbusters. They're cult films. And so this is a way to keep the comic origin and do it in shorthand so that, again, Spider-Man Homecoming. We did not want to see Peter Parker get bit by that spider a third damn time. We just need to reference it and move on. Yeah, but it's the shorthand's too short. I mean, we get this cool lady Elizabeth Hatton psychic coming in here, and the next thing we know, she's going to be dead. I mean, again, there's so much here that they don't use. Like, Lobster Johnson blows in, and then what was the point of all of this? Once they finally get to the betrayal, I really go with this movie. It, it takes about half hour to launch into Act 2, but we find out that Hellboy has been brought to England under false pretenses. There's this Osiris Club, which is kind of like an old boys club all white men i thought it was a strip club in new jersey (laughs) or that yeah that's not the one he's going to yeah what's funny addressing your concerns about bringing in the whole world war ii origins like with this osiris club they're super old but they don't age and it's i don't know some magic mumbo jumbo reason is given and then they got to tack that onto broom as well they're like oh yeah it applies to him as well that's why he hasn't gotten older since world war ii yeah that was confusing but Stuart, that's exactly what i'd said earlier the first half hour of this film feels like they're throwing in too much and I'm trying to figure out what this movie is other than Hellboy's greatest hits in live action format but yes once this betrayal happens I think we have our plot I think we're going to see something really occur with this betrayal it turns out the betrayal itself is not all that important either because (laughs) he's going to be betrayed by this Osiris club they're going to try to tase him he's going to pass out when he wakes up the giants they were supposedly hunting have come around and killed the whole Osiris club and then we just get to see Hellboy do a little bit more action with the giants I think that's the last moment where I really felt things weren't cohering after that when we start getting the fairy coming in is where I think things really start to become a movie and not a best of. But the Osiris Club is important thematically for one reason, and that is that they're pretty much mad at Broom for allowing this to linger. When they explain the origin story, it's Lady Hatton in the crystal ball that tells us the World War II scene. They frame it with the idea that they cannot age until Hellboy is dead. So is that the reason why broom left him alive why hasn't this guy done what any human would do and kill the monster 
what about this little red demon made him adopt him as a son? And that is going to be a question that is asked throughout this movie, and frankly, never given a satisfying answer. It becomes why Hellboy no longer trusts Broom and really latches on to Alice. And this is, I kind of put on, again, the director, Neil Marshall. I, I just get that vibe. I got it in The Descent. I got it in Dog Soldiers, where, oh, there's some attempt to give these people characterization. In The Descent, there's a bit better job done there. But I feel like that's not his concern. He wants to get to the gore. He wants to see things ooze. And you got to put some characterization in there because that's what makes a story. But I don't feel like that's his primary concern. I'm not even all that satisfied with how they introduce Alice and what her purpose is in this movie either. To be different than Liz. But I will say this. If the point of this movie is to be R-rated and vulgar and gory, this was when I knew the movie was R. I was like, there's no way that Hellboy is chopping off these giants' heads and driving their faces into trees and impaling them. There's just no way that this could be a PG-13 movie. And it's great fun. I mean, I wanted to say I had a lot of fun watching the movie at this point. It does feel like some Danzig music video they never made. or <laughs> some, Again, British. It feels very much like Sabbath or something like that. I wish they would have got Sabbath and all this hair metal that keeps playing. I just, I just don't like hair metal, but I agree. I love, as clunky as that opening was, and as bad as some of the effects were, there's also some good stuff in here, like when the dude turns into a vampire bat when they're wrestling. That looks good. I love when they're going through the Osiris Club, and you just have all these giant heads mounted to the wall. Just the set design. There are things that do look good in this film. There are things that also look really bad. And I'm going to say that if it looks like a B-movie with unconvincing effects, that plays into a Midnight movie aesthetic i mean oh i don't mind that i agree yeah my comparison is sam raimi's army of darkness nobody would call those effects good but they fit the tone of a reverence that he has going throughout this movie this is chasing a similar dragon here and i think slaying it i do think in this moment I don't know, see where all the hate is coming from. This is fun Hellboy violence. Yeah, I agree. I knew it was R-rated because there were a number of F-bombs dropped along the road to get here. So as soon as I heard fuck used liberally, I knew we were in an R-rated film. The gore never got me because... The CGI is not good, guys. This is just not good-looking effects in this film. No, it's not Avengers Endgame style, but for a B-movie... It's barely Black Panther. Again, Army of Darkness. But for a B-movie, that works for me. And this feels like a B-movie. Yeah, like if your belief is that everything must look photorealistic, I think you miss out on the tongue-in-cheek vibe. Like some things look bad. I don't know that it's intentional, but I think when it's obvious in this giant scene, that's blue screen stuff. But I think that that can be kind of fun. That kind of works in a sarcastic movie. You can be taken out of the moment and not believe in the realism when, you know, you're having fun and it's kind of cheeky. And this movie, much like Deadpool, is very cheeky and violent and, and in your face. I just think that when it comes to action, it lacks the adrenaline when it looks like God of War video game. But you like Army of Darkness. Yes. And that movie looks like shit. <laughs> I mean, I just, it does. I have a thing for Harryhausen. He puts a nostalgic vibe in my heart. I don't know that anyone's nostalgic for bad CGI. Oh no, this comes off as, yeah, a 90s attempt at a big budget superhero film. Like, that is the vibe I got. Like, this would have been perfect in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, I think any generation can 
appreciate the limitations of previous special effects generations. Yes, technically speaking, this movie looks like ass, but it works <laughs> because this movie's tone is in your face and showing its ass. So it works. But in addition to the effects, I'll say that I thought just overall the look of the film was very uninspired. Just camera angles, everything. It was really flat looking. And I don't know if this was a limitation of the budget and the effects that they couldn't do great stuff with the camera or, you know, the way Guillermo does. You know, I love The Descent, the movie, but it had great use of light and dark, but it didn't have a lot of amazing camera work. So I feel like that may be a mark of the director. I mean, the camera works in joke telling. So like case in point, we get a POV shot where Hellboy has been tricked. He's on the bridge thinking they're about to ambush giants and they stab him in the back. He jumps into the water. We see him drowning. It's going to be the end. And then something swoops in. And what's the punchline? The severed head of the leader still wearing that stupid antelope hat <laughs> sinking down in the water. Very Monty Python. Yeah. I mean, again, that to me says we're making, yes, English jokes, and that's cool. Again, it will not look real. It will not convince you of its reality, but it does set me in the mood to have a, a good time. I meet this movie at the level that it's playing at. I'm having fun with it in that same kind of way. When Hellboy is slaying the giants, it got me the same kind of fun moment as Thor Ragnarok's opening when he was fighting the lava demon Sartor and they were playing Led Zeppelin, you know? Again, I felt like even when they weren't playing hair metal, this movie had a hair metal vibe. The score is very electric guitar and just rocking. So many solos. Yeah, I mean, we're children of the 80s, so we were conditioned to pair satanic thoughts with heavy metal. I mean, that was the big fear of our age, was that if you listened to that music, you would get into the devil. So the fact that we actually are rooting for a demon here, and he's jumping around to what sounds like classical music, but played by Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's fulfilling a childhood fantasy, is I guess the way I would put it. And it's right for us. I don't know if it will make sense for other generations, but for 80s kids, they're going to get this joke. I wish it was a little bit more heavy metal album cover look, though. I mm -hmm. mean, the only demonic views we get are of Hellboy himself with his shaved down horns. Now, another compliment I'm going to give this movie is that I feel like, at the very least, they tread water and arguably improve on the sidekicks. I do like Alice as much as I like Selma Blair's character, and I really do like Daniel Day Kim. He kind of steals the movie when he shows up here. And he was not originally casted. This was a bit of controversy. They casted a white guy to play this Japanese character from the comic book, and they got a Korean actor. I guess all Asians are the same, apparently, but... Yeah, you know. It's better than who they were going to do, I think. Ed Skeen, do you know who he is? Remember that Transporter film that wasn't Jason Statham? He was also Francis in Deadpool. Yeah, I think they were thinking Deadpool. Yeah, again. What can we get that? makes it more like Deadpool. It seems to be the mission statement. But again, Alice blows in here for not particularly good reason. She's psychic and just knew he needed help, I guess. And who cares? Because she's fun. 
and I really feel like there is a charm to this and they've taken out the relationship thing. I don't think that they imply, I didn't get the vibe, you guys can debate me if I'm wrong, that again, it's a parent relationship. This movie is preoccupied with fathers and sons, or in this case, Hellboy was a father figure to Alice. He was fringed with her parents. Now there are urns on her bookcase. They've been cremated and he's got to meet her as not little Alice, but as an adult psychic. Yeah, it feels more brother and sister to me than lovers. Yeah, I at no point got a romance from him. I thought there would be. When I see Alice, I'm like, oh, we have a new Liz. Well, we do in that she is kicking ass on the BPRD by the time things are said and done. Let's keep in mind, he and Liz worked together for quite a while before he developed a crush on her too. So I could see were this film to go on, maybe that relationship would be there. I did get kind of a Zazie Beats Domino feel off of her though, from Deadpool 2. I really did like Alice and the way she was talking to the spirits and able to use it. You know, again, the reason I got Domino is when she's like, let's get under the table. Why are we under the table? To avoid the broken glass. That felt very like Domino and her luck power to me. Sure. And if there is a future romance, I do think it will be with her and the guy that's coming in with the SWAT team. Ben DeMeo is, you know, I think at the end of it, she even says, I really like cats. You know, he's got his secret side and it, they'll spend the whole movie teasing the idea that he was in the movie Predator. Yes. Went down to yes, Belize. Yes. Was the only one that survived. He says he's the only one survived. And yet we see a jaguar monster pull him into the thicket. And of course, it's because it turned him and he'll be spending much of this movie suppressing that jaguar side. I think that... That she likes that side of him and I think that they could play that in the future but for Hellboy they really don't give him anything other than his dad like that seems to be the only relationship and now he is against his dad because the Osiris Club told him that his dad was there to kill him in World War II and that was something that had never been shared with him and he is Pretty much the only person to trust is Alice, and Alice has a relationship with the foe of this film. We are going to find out in parallel, at the same time that we're watching all this giant stuff, there is an evil character going around who wanted to be Alice back in 1992. And... Jacob, I have to ask if this meant anything to you, because they tease this villain. We just see some old witch who's lost her eye. It's a Baba Yaga. This is apparently you're not Russian. This is a big Russian folktale witch character. No, but I've seen Ant-Man and that was a <laughs> running joke in that film. <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, Baba Yaga... Did that also come up in Drag Me to Hell or something like that? I, I feel like there was a Raimi connection with Baba Yaga. But we see Baba Yaga being asked for the ability to kill Hellboy. But I didn't expect it to be Rocksteady from the Mutant Ninja Turtles here. I mean, yeah, this does have its origin in the comics. It plays, I, I'll admit, like this, there is so much in this film. It is overstuffed with mythology and just pulling bits from the comics and all that. It does come off a little bit weird, like, because he's called a fury, but he's like a warthog man. And I don't associate those with fairies, but yeah, this is all from the comic, this whole origin of Alice. She doesn't have psychic powers in the comic, but they added that for reasons to move the plot along. But yeah, her story is from the comics. And yeah, there is a warthog man. And he got mad at Hellboy and wants his revenge. And I really like this. I mean, it's worth pointing out in 1992, he was the size of a pig. Like he was baby sized, snuck into.
into the crib. And then because they had a horseshoe and could put the iron on him, his fakery was exposed. And since that time, I don't think he's grown at all. I think that when we see the Baba Yaga scene, he's asking her as a little piglet-sized monster, hey, can you help me get Hellboy? And then she puts him on the path to digging up the parts of Namei, and Namei's the one that actually makes him bigger. That That's who forges the deal. I took it as he grew up. <laughs> yeah, I took it as he grew up. And it, later in the movie, we're going to see he hulks out. And that's because of the Blood Queen. But yeah, I mean, we definitely see him it, when he gets to St. Sebastian's, which may be the first bit of LeMay that he finds. He finds the head when we get to this monastery where, of course, the joke is they all have taken the vow of silence and they have to use chalkboards. I thought it was a pretty good joke. I was chuckling through this. It was okay. I mean, again, it, it's, it made me think of British television humor. I wondered, is using a chalkboard breaking a vow of silence? It seems like it would be. You're not moving your mouth. I think that's what the vow of silence is about. I don't know why Gruagach is needing to go through this motion if he can eat anyone's tongue and speak in their voice. But again, it's best not to ask a lot of logic-based questions. This movie, as uh, Jacob, you're really helping me understand this. It is a string of moments from the comic book that don't have a lot of unity as far as plot goes. They're cherry-picking their favorite bits. Well, they're taking a very long storyline. The Wild Hunt is eight issues, which a typical arc is four or five issues. So they're taking a lot of story. And then, the, yeah, then they're taking a lot of other bits from other stories and putting it into an already very long story. Right. I find myself annoyed whenever I have to ask why and how and, you know, like at what point, like we understand that he keeps bringing her body parts. The Blood Queen is like watching reality TV. <laughs> like I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that her <laughs> severed hand is the one holding the remote and just flipping through. But yeah, I mean, supposedly she couldn't get her body parts without him. And yet later she's just going to appear in the moonlight and just snatch away the last body part. I mean, they're very willy nilly about things and rules and why things are happening. It's gag based is what I want to emphasize here. If you're coming to this wanting a fantasy, this movie will frustrate you. If you're coming to this wanting a comedy, I don't know. I was laughing at a pretty regular interval. I can't say that I was laughing all that hard, but I was intrigued. I wanted to see how the Blood Queen came back together. Of all things, this was kind of reminding me of Bordello of Blood, where we had Queen Lilith, whose heart was severed in four pieces, and you had to bring the four pieces back together, and they would fuse together and become whole again. And I just want to point out, that is a film you enjoy. Yes. Okay. Most people, I think, when they, when they hear something like <laughs> <Yeah>. that, would <laughs> think that you're dinging the movie, but you're happy... They're doing something as good as Bordello of Blood. No, not at all. It's merely because I know Bordello of Blood so well, and they have, you know, Lilith, a vampire here, a blood queen, that I'm seeing a reused story idea. Yeah, and again, Bordello of Blood didn't invent that either. I no. mean, I'm sure we could come up with a long history of movies where people are reassembled, starting with Frankenstein. Let's not do it. <laughs> no, agreed. But you know what I'm saying. It's, a, it's assembling the villain by a minion through finding pieces that had been spread across the world. That was my frame of reference. 
Osiris Club has the last body part, which is why they get slaughtered by Gruagutch. And this also helpfully allows Lady Hatton to die before we've even gotten to know that psychic. We find her. It's kind of a gory scene. Like when, when they come here, Alice is actually having what she describes as a psychic migraine. She can hear the screams. Before we've entered the mansion, we know that everyone in Osiris Club is dead. And that includes this medium. Their token woman is laying there with a crystal ball just kind of revolving around her. And this effect that they use with Alice, like when she has the dead talk through her, they, she, I don't know, vomits her intestines out and turns into a ghost. It's really weird looking. I think that's what it looks like. Well, this, what I was going to say was, I don't remember this ever showing up in a Hellboy comic. This Alice has different powers than the comic book version. But I know having read stuff on actual seances, like people have depicted it through art in like the 1800s or whatever, like this, like smoke or things coming out of the the medium's mouth. So I thought that was cool to kind of see that on the screen. It is gruesome looking though. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up. Like this is actually how they wrote about it. Prior to Ghostbusters, this is what ectoplasm was if you were talking about the occult. That it is a a, a literal kind of gack. It's not green. It doesn't come from Slimer. It is something (laughs) like a body fluid, like a phlegm, basically snot. It comes out of you and it can form into some kind of ghost knot here uh, yeah it looks pretty cool and i barely got a chance to know this psychic but it allows us to understand alice's power she could commune with the dead she can bring them back in this way and it's dramatic and this is supposed to be a big revelation to hellboy that broom his father figure was supposed to kill him and this starts i guess we could say a midlife crisis with hellboy because david harbour is around that age but this is supposed to be a bit of conflict a, a new revelation about his upbringing that his dad was supposed to kill him right and where do they go with that again i to me it would mean writing a lot more scenes between him and ian mcshane but ian mcshane is just kind of camped out in the basement of a fish and chip shop he's working at winston churchill's old bunker and trying to figure out he's Coman books to find out about the Blood Queen. This was not on their radar. And I feel like they should have an adventure together. He should be a part of this team with Alice and DeMeo for the rest of this movie. I keep hoping, fingers crossed, they're not going to kill him. I really don't want them to do that again. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking how trite it is just to kill the father figure time and time and time again and by casting Ian McShane who is an actor that I feel has really exploded in terms of his current amount of work I see this guy all over the place I never really paid attention to him before the first John Wick and I thought by casting him, they might have cast him when they wanted to stick around for a while. Again, he's playing Broom younger, so I thought that might mean Broom was going to stay. But no, we're going to replay that same story beat. And I could see him joining the team. He has a... McShane, the actor, just has a harder edge, again, than John Hurt and this version of Broom. Just has a harder edge to him. It feels like the Jeremy Irons version of Alfred Pennyworth in those Zack Snyder Batman films. It's like, yeah, I could see him picking up a machine gun and shooting at Ghost or whatever. I'm always a big fan. Again, I can't wait. The Deadwood movie is finally happening. He's in it. It's out next month. Always love Deadwood. One of my favorite shows. He's 90% of the reason why 
love to see him in the right role. But again, like so much about this movie's good ideas, given very short screen time. We get this weird moment instead. Hellboy goes storming off. And for reasons I... Someone help me here. The elevator <laughs> becomes a portal to a dimension where a house is walking around on chicken legs. Again, that's just the Bobby Yaga myth. You blame the Russians for that. <laughs> the Russians had a myth about an elevator? No, about a house walking on chicken legs that a witch lives in. Okay, I just didn't understand this elevator. Yeah, it seemed like they had five scenes to get to this, and then the editor said this movie's running too long, and they just smash cut it them together and there's no reason why the elevator would take him into this moment other than we as an audience are ready for him to reunite with Baba Yaga. They're old enemies. She apparently tried to raise Stalin's ghost and he plucked out her eye and now she wants one of his yellow eyes. Yeah, I I guess yeah, Baba Yaga summoned him for reasons because she wants a second eye back but I thought this is where you were going to go, Stuart when you said you realized this was R-rated because ah, fighting giants, PG-13 you can see that in Lord of the Rings Sure, they don't have, I guess, trees getting rammed through their faces, but this is, like, troubling. Like, the child-eating stuff <laughs> and just that crab walk. She's got these peg legs and those nasty old witch titties are almost falling out of her blouse. <laughs> like, this is some gruesome. I almost feel like, oh, we just put a Hellraiser movie into a Hellboy film and combined them. I did wonder, both with the Blood Queen and here, if they were going to just go nasty nipple, but fortunately they never do. Again, my reference on this is Army of Darkness when we get Ash going into the pit and it's a kung fu witch. It kind of feels like that when they they have this fight here. It is great fun to watch. It works on its own terms. You know, Arnie, you've always talked about, oh, superhero movies, they're every genre now. I feel like... Maybe a lot of the pushback against this one because it really is like in that horror genre. And I think people, maybe you don't want to go see all those Marvel films, but if you like horror movies, I think you'd be fine with this one. Like they go for stuff here. Yeah, I think maybe if I can speculate as to why it's gotten such harsh pushback, it may be because the longtime fans don't forgive them for switching teams and getting a new director and actor. And the new people would never get on board with this. This would never be something they'd want to see because this is the very definition of cult. Again, Sam Raimi's films didn't make a lot of money either. There is a very limited audience if you're talking about a rock and roll witch comedy with <laughs> with R-rated violence. I don't know what you're talking about. That seems like it would appeal to every audience. I Yeah, don't bring the kids. But it seems like the only point of this scene is to really, hey, this is where the Blood Queen's at, so you could get there and move on with the plot. Yeah, and of course he does it through deception. He says, I'll give you my eye. He never gives her a date. So technically, he could wait all the until he's dead or banished or whatever. So to her, it's like not getting the eye and, and she'll curse him and of course be a part of the end stinger. And it's really weird. Like, they know he comes back. He's like, hey, I know where the Blood Queen is. We got till midnight. Did he come back, like, at 11.30 p.m.? (laughs) Because it seems like they could have got there very quickly and been ready for her. Instead, they're, like, going to go through some forest and zombies start popping up because they can't land the copter close enough to this tree where the Blood Queen's blood is still sitting in. And that's, like, the last thing she needs. Yeah, Arnie, you said that it was disjointed for you to watch the beginning of this movie. I never not feel that. I feel like this movie is disjointed at its heart. At its heart and soul, the way it's been put together, maybe by design, maybe they love the fact that it makes no sense, and that can be its own kind of fun sometimes. (laughs) Nonsense can work if it's entertaining nonsense. And, you know, I love watching a house on chicken legs. I mean, some of this nonsense is cool. It bugs me that I don't know why it's there, but maybe not that much. But it does bug me, cumulatively speaking, that we're now building 
pretty much to the climax, and I really don't know why anything is happening or what the whole point of it all is going to be. We're back to where King Arthur had tricked the Blood Queen into he used Excalibur to stab her. Here, Hellboy is going to use a six shooter, blow out her eye. It's a whole eye fetish in this movie. <laughs> what was this thing not ever released in 3D? Like, because that eye seems like it's supposed to be like waving at you if you had 3D glasses on, or it could just be the awful effects that this film has throughout it. Yeah, again, that requires money and time and... It was the one time I wondered if this actually got a 3D release because that eye just like lingers like almost looking at you most of the time. It's really weirdly shot. But the Blood Queen gets her blood back. Keep in mind, when she got torn up by Excalibur, her blood leaked into the tree and that tree was never torn down, even though it's pretty much suburban all around Pendle Hill. That tree has been preserved, and now all the monsters are coming out. She is whole, and she is going to reenact Tom Cruise's mummy and wander through London releasing plague and throwing a thorn from her crown and making Alice sick. Yeah, again, it's just so disjointed and weird. All these monsters come out of nowhere. Okay, the queen's there. They're all coming. And then, like, Hellboy shows up, and they have a whole scene, and then the monsters kind of just go away, and I guess they got to be tucked away until the climax when they get to come out again. Like, there's got to be a lot of scenes either that were never just shot but were planned or that are on the cutting room floor and they had to get this to two hours i really feel like hellboy's origin should have been connected to the opening scene like i really feel like maybe it could be this is his mother or something but or broom's descendant was here i don't know but i just i want well his descendant is there king arthur's there no i mean broom's not hellboy's but i i i just really want things to start tying together And in fact, this movie will never work very hard in justifying why it leaps from one moment to the next. It does so in spite of logic. And it goes back to what I said, if you listen to our Shazam review, about how so many first superhero movies, origin stories, do tie the superhero origin to the villain origin, because that way they can shorthand one of the origins. Here, you've got one that's starting in Merlin, the other starting in World War II, and never the twain shall meet. And thus, it does feel like neither is really given a lot of depth. Although I'm going to argue that like, it doesn't begin in World War II. It begins in 1574. Once Alice gets stuck with this thorn, that betrayer witch is helpfully still hanging out by the tree and says, you guys really need to go to the bowels of hell and see Merlin. Well, there's like three witches all of a sudden. It's very confusing. I wasn't even sure if that was the betrayer witch. Yeah, she's here simply so she can point them to Merlin who has been kept alive as punishment under a rock. And Merlin is the one that knows the full story, which is that King Arthur's, I don't know, great-great-great-granddaughter, Sarah Hughes, married a demon in 1574, was taken to hell, and gave birth to Hellboy there. So, like, that's where it happened. King Arthur's granddaughter was dragged to hell, and we only know this because it's a flashback shown when Merlin is doing a data dump, and Hellboy has just been, I don't know, sitting in a cauldron for hundreds of years, waiting for Rasputin to summon him. Well, he was cool with just being a devil down there, and then he was brought to Earth. I just feel like they could do better than this. I'm not asking for the moon, but I do feel... Like, they could have told an origin story that had more connection between the uh, various elements. Here's where I think some of the problem is. One, one, they probably just don't have the writers that could pull all this together. But it does feel like, hey, let's adapt this storyline 
which again comes very late in the Hellboy mythology. Like usually, yeah, if you're doing a first film, you're going to take something from issue one because that's the origin. And here they're taking stuff very late in the chronology and they're trying to make it an origin story and trying to do something different than Del Toro did. And I just don't feel like they have the talent to pull all that off. That said, I really do like this. I mean, I've always liked this about Hellboy, the temptation of his destiny. That the reason why Broom was going to kill him in World War II is because this creature is prophesied to bring about the end of the world. He is, after all, on Angrama and not Hellboy. Hellboy's the slang name for a beastie that is going to take Excalibur, fly around on a dragon, and chop people down in a really awesome sequence that ends far too easy. That is a heavy metal cover. It really is. Mm. It should be a Judas Priest or or something. (laughs) It reminded me what the stakes really are. If I haven't always felt, and of course Hellboy even says, I want some stakes that make sense, here are the stakes is that if this guy actually draws Excalibur, fulfilling that destiny will actually bring about the end of man, not the end of these monsters. And we wondered that. That was the tease of Hellboy 2, was in saving Hellboy's life, did in fact Selma Blair doom us all? Here we're going to kind of get some answers to that. I feel that every Hellboy first movie is going to have the fiery crown and the fully grown horns and some apocalyptic vision of Hellboy destroying the Earth. It's like the Hulk. Yeah, it's like Hulk smash. You got to show that the Hulk is dangerous and that it's not all about being a superhero. And that's the stakes with Hellboy is that he could destroy the world at any moment if he gives into that temptation. Yeah, and I, I feel like even better than Del Toro, by having this moment here, I really got how cool and scary that is and that it does it he rejects it you know merlin uses the last of his power to bring the stone up there's the sword spinning in it go ahead and grab it and hellboy won't do it even though it it does have the power maybe the only thing that can kill the blood queen he doesn't think if he touches it that that's who he'll kill and there appears to be some weird time limit on grabbing that sword that i don't it's just like you waited too long is this a video game did i not hit x in time do you see the graphics of this film yes it's a video game (laughs) (laughs) merlin only has so much magic and by doing this he at least is allowed to die now we see him fall down a moth escapes his mouth and it's kind of a cool tracking shot it gets eaten by a crow i I did love that that was a good joke (laughs) Yeah, and it brings us to our climax. We see this is where Blood Queen is, yeah, walking down, destroying sidewalk cafes. It feels like a hard cut. All of a sudden, she's walking down, like flies are covering people. I'm like, oh, I guess we're at the end of the film already. Like, there's no gradual release of these plagues. It's just, boom, we're in the middle of it. I actually thought we might have been at the climax when Excalibur came the first time because it does feel like the showdown between the Blood Queen and Hellboy And 90 minutes have passed, I know because I'm checking my watch, so it's like, is this the end? I had no idea how long the movie was going in. No, it's a full two-hour movie. This is the first one where the hero quote-unquote loses, and then we're going to have yet another chase before we get to the actual climax. Yeah, I couldn't believe it because I did know the time on this, and I was watching the clock, and yeah, when they get to the church, there's literally 30 minutes left on this film. There's only two villains to fight. First, we got to get the little piggy you know he's there hulked out and it's not actually hellboy that defeats him yeah the blood queen's gonna get rid of him yeah 
And of course, DeMeo is going to finally allow himself. He gets pinned by some falling concrete. This is the, gives him the impetus to finally be his monster self. This wasn't a surprise, right? We've seen him injecting something. And again, that flashback, I thought they took footage from the Predator. Like that had to be a joke, right? Because it's shot just like the Predator. But we see that Jaguar get him like, okay, he's going to turn into that at some point. Yeah, I didn't take it necessarily as an intentional joke so much as a lack of creativity with the jungle predator scene it is shot exactly like that movie though it like it is weirdly shot to be similar to that first predator they're not trying to get away with anything they know you saw predator and they're they're having a laugh this is again it's cheeky this feels like a comedy to me and that's it's a joke and i didn't catch that he would be a were cheetah i saw him injecting himself with something and i didn't quite know what and by the time he was ready to beast out I know nothing about this character. I remembered later I'd seen a trailer where he got punched in the face and turned into a cheetah, but I hadn't remembered it at the time. I'm thinking a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing going on, kind of like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So when he turns into the cheetah, I'm like, ah, all right, werewolf, cheetah thing. I'll go with it. Not only that, but he was just, he was so hard to like as a human. You know, he has such hard attitudes about monsters. He seems fascist about squashing them. And, you know, it's brought up, Alice is the one that points out, you know, like they were really awful to witches back then. And he's like, well, this is what it takes to, to fight evil. The fact that he himself is a monster, that he is like Hellboy. And the fact that he lives in two worlds, that's a nice arc for him. And I do think Daniel Dekem is really good in this role. I actually think, I don't know, I could watch a spinoff movie with him. Oh yeah, no, I don't like him at the beginning and I like him by the end. So that to me, it tells that actor worked for me. He repulsed me when he was supposed to repulse me and got me on his side when he was supposed to do that. Daniel Day Kim is an actor I really liked in all the seasons of Lost, so I recognized him right away here, and I did think he was going to be an antagonist. I thought he was going to try to kill Hellboy at the first moment. I didn't realize he was keeping that bullet as a just-in-case Hellboy starts to go evil. I thought he kept it just as a, I know Hellboy's going to go evil, and the first chance I get, I'm shooting him in the heart. I mean, he makes that joke, I'm going to shoot him in the heart because his brain's too small. So I really didn't see him being a good guy and part of the team. So I, it was a nice turn for me. And yeah, I, I always found it funny because despite being Korean, I knew Daniel Day Kim couldn't actually speak Korean on Lost. It was a real trouble for him. So it was interesting to see him play with a British accent. And he is in a long line of this movie of characters that have been contemplating killing Hellboy. I mean, it started with Broom. The very first person to meet the demon was there with a shotgun supposed to take him out. Why didn't he do it? Well, that comes back. We see that the Blood Queen is actually taken dead hostage. And once, very conveniently, we find out that the tomb of King Arthur is underneath this cathedral. And Hellboy is thrown into it, faced yet again with grabbing Excalibur. She basically pushes him over the edge and angers him by, with a flick of her finger, opening up his carotid artery and killing Ian McShane's character. And I'm like, no, not another death for this character in the first installment. <laughs> Why do you have to be so repetitive? You know what? I was still hoping he could be saved. I was like, they may actually think 
that because we've seen this character die, this may be a misdirect. It was very sad for lots of reasons, including the fact that I like Ian McShane and I'm tired of cliche <laughs> that we are going to see the exact same storyline play out and dad has to die, which will not necessitate this character becoming Hellman. He never seems to mature, but he does get <laughs> angry enough to grab Excalibur and thus become Anang Ungrama. Yeah, we see the crown, we see the horns. And I got to say, they had to have used different makeup because ooh, most of Hellboy is really tough to look at in this film. Like, like, it did not look like that production still that they released. It looked like that makeup was barely staying on him. Those cheekbones are just very high and extreme, but it, it looks like they changed the shape of his face when he becomes King Hellboy and has the fire crown and the huge horns. He just got a better look at that point. Yeah, I, again, I could have used more of this. I mean, I know we don't want to have a giant climax where Hellboy is slaughtering human beings, but again, these are some of the most exciting moments of the film. He raises demons, right? It's just his presence, just taking on that form. We see the earth open up and like all these demons, giant demons like you get a lot of gore here and i i love it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense like and nothing is really done with these monsters but i'm having a lot of fun in this little sequence a 50 foot clown that's like its legs are stilts that spear you <laughs> yeah. that was fun spear you yeah <laughs> i felt like some of these creature designs seemed like del toro castoffs you know a little bit pan's labyrinth by way of the discount special effects shop I, here's the thing i don't know where del toro ends and the original comic book art begins i cannot say what was conceived before del toro all i know is that my whole association with this world is his touch and since i know all of his films i know what that looks like here again i just wanted more i just wanted more of this we could have gotten to it earlier we could have seen hellboy be evil for a little bit while longer you say it's a long comic book arc but i feel like there wasn't a lot that's happened for him to do so we could have gotten here earlier, but I think, you know, for lots of reasons, they just decide to have him not pursue this destiny when he hears the sound of his dad coming from the afterlife. Thanks to Alice, she does another ectoplasm spit up and we get one more Ian McShane monologue. Oh, and it is bad. <laughs> This gets a little sappy, right? I mean, first of all, I I never needed to see topless CGI Ian McShane. <laughs> Second of all, there's too much time for them to say goodbye. You know, it's like if you're going to kill a character tragically, allow it to be tragic. Don't give them this goodbye moment. That's the thing for me. It goes on too long and it looks way bad. Like I turn to my wife and I'm like, I wasn't even paying attention at this point because I was so distracted by how bad it looked. I'm like, this isn't good, right? Like, this looks awful. And it was distracting to me where, yeah, it was just like, oh boy, I'm proud of you. I guess that's what he was saying. It just, it looks awful. It looks like Machine's head was like floating and they couldn't quite get it to stay on that body. It looks as good as... Ghostbusters 2 is what I would say. And if you like that aesthetic. I wish they were using a puppet for like Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, here's the frustration. I've needed Broom to explain to me why he didn't pull the trigger on Hellboy in 1943. And all I get is I love you. Like, I don't get any better excuse for all of this jibber-jabber here at the end. I never understood why this human said, I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do and kill a monster. And that was what the whole movie was building to and it just dropped that ball like it's dropped every other ball that it tried to juggle. Yeah, I was 
thinking we'd get something there. We get this, if I have wings, it's because of you. But yet it never explains why he made that choice. Did he have fatherly pangs? Did he feel his men don't have a biological clock, but did he feel one ticking anyway? Yes. If the psychic that was there and the other Osiris club that were there and DeMeo wanted to kill him and all these human beings, if it's the human impulse to want to kill monsters, what about Broom made him resist that human touch? It's an important character trait. And this is where you miss Del Toro because Del Toro, if nothing else, I mean, he had great effects, all that, but he also brought emotion and relationships to all these crazy monsters and humans running around. And I feel like that is, this moment is when I miss Del Toro the most. Yeah, I, I agreed. I, I mean, we get the point. The point is, I love you. And so because someone said, I love you, Hellboy's going to swing the Excalibur and chop up the Blood Queen again and throw her head back into the depths of hell and all is saved. Sort of. I mean, I do think like London is on fire. Like it's saved in the same way like Notre Dame is saved, right? Yeah, it does this pan up of London and you just see destroyed and then it's going to be like, what, one year later or six months later, something like that. And I'm like, oh, they're going to show they've restored everything in London. Nope, they're just on another adventure. Like London is in shambles at the end of this film. Yeah, and they have to go to Siberia. By by contrast, Siberia is looking good. (laughs) We find out Alice has joined the BPRD and that she and Hellboy are actually going to be joined by DeMeo and Storm, something called the Atlantis Society. I didn't get it. Oh, it showed a mermaid. You should have got it. Well, they punch out one of the guys and he's got it like a mermaid tattoo. Oh, yeah. I, I just didn't know we were going to Ape Sapien, but... Oh, I had a feeling. I'm like, Atlantis, they got a mermaid. This has got to be Ape Sapien's introduction. I didn't catch it either. I just, you know, Atlantis, there was so much playing how many secret societies of white men are there that it rolled off me. Yeah, not to mention all the Motley crew going on. It just, again, I thought it was another excuse to rock out. And it is, but I, I also think that they're telling us that if you were missing one of the probably major essential characters that we really loved from the first two movies, uh, he would be there in the sequel. And then we get a couple other scenes that I suppose would be leading to a sequel if one happens. The first, I really don't get. Hellboy is at his dad's grave drinking and Thomas Hayden Church shows up as a ghost. Yeah, it's weird because of the way they introduce Lobster Johnson. Like in the comic, the first time you see Lobster Johnson is as a ghost and he shows up and helps Hellboy. Like that's the thing that in the comic, a lot of times just like random ghosts show up to help out. And then you get this whole backstory about who Lobster Johnson is. Here you see him at the beginning and yeah, he shows up as a ghost. Again, if you're a fan like I am, this is great, but I don't know if it works for anyone else. Having never understood why I should love Lobster Johnson, I was left (laughs) cold by this scene. It would only make sense to me if this were the only character that Hellboy had interacted with in World War II. Like, I'm at my dad's grave, and then another character that's long since dead is coming back, and I'm meeting them. Okay, but here it just kind of, it's a, we find out Hellboy is a fan. Like, he's just, he kind of geeks out at seeing this legendary Nazi killer, and is told that he might have won a battle, but there's still a war to be waged. And then the second scene, Baba Yaga really wants her eye, and some <laughs> voice is saying, 
He'll get it. I thought they might be going with Merlin because she promises that she'll finally let the stranger have what he really wants, which is to die. And that was something Merlin expressed he wanted to do. But then I remembered, oh, he died. Like, how could it be Merlin? And I was thinking, oh, is it Rasputin? But no, there is another character in the comics. Again, based on Russian folklore, so it makes sense that he's hanging out with Baba Yaga. You could read all about him on Wikipedia. Koshki, the immortal or the deathless. Again, this Russian folklore character that hid his soul in an egg and put that egg in an egg and that egg in an egg. Sound like Russian nesting dolls? I guess that's where that whole thing comes from, but I guess it's the introduction of that character if we ever get a sequel that we'll never get for this film. I'll be surprised. We said it last time. It's worth pointing out half of the Hellboy 2 review was us saying, well, this is the end of this one. We're never getting any more Hellboy. Never say never. Should be the lesson as we walk away from this, but I think you're right. We'll never know who Baba Yaga is really dealing with. Well, how badly do we want to know? Jacob, Stewart, do you recommend Hellboy? Jacob. I was worried when I went to go see this movie because, again, that 13% on Rotten Tomatoes, that's not a good sign. And the fact that I went on a Thursday night, the opening night for movies now, and usually I buy my tickets online. I went to go do that, and it's like, select your seat. I'm like, oh, only five people have bought seats. I'm not going to worry about buying my tickets early. I'll go pick them up on the way home from work. So I have them. I go to the movie theater to buy the tickets ahead of time. Oh, those same five seats. That's all that I sold so far. And I get there and there's like maybe 10 people total. And I tell my wife, I'm like, because we all love Hellboy because of what Del Toro did. I'm like, I just want to make sure you have the right expectations for this film because it has gotten awful reviews. And as I was sitting there watching it, I'm like, ah, I don't know why this got awful reviews. It's not a great coherent story, but it's fun. It's B-movie fun. It reminded me a lot of, again, I, I referenced 90s comic book adaptations. I got a Judge Dredd vibe off of it, which, look, that's not a great thing because that Sylvester Stallone movie is awful. But, like, they went real ambitious with that one. It's like, hey, we got this comic book material. We don't really know what to do with it. Let's just throw 20 storylines in it. And Rob Schneider, for some reason, and it flopped. And, yeah, this one kind of is overstuffed just like that. But I think if... Especially for fans of now playing, we got a big contingency of horror fans. I think this is going to work for you. It's got a lot of pus, a lot of gore and blood and drippings. And yeah, it's, it's wrapped up in a comic book superhero movie. But the fun of it is what's different than what Del Toro did. It feels like a lot of critics couldn't get away from what Del Toro did. So they trashed this movie. This is a different beast. And it's more about the guitar solos and the monsters bleeding and pussing and gushing and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's kind of fun. It's not a great film, but it's a fun B midnight movie. So I'll recommend it at that level. Stuart. Yeah, I agree. I've seen worse. It was my reaction walking out of that. I didn't have a great time with it, but I thought it delivered the base thrills you would expect from a Hellboy movie. They did the minimum requirement to get a green arrow. And I don't know why anyone would hate this other than just swearing allegiance to what had been done before by Guillermo del Toro. I get that. The dead pooling of Hellboy is the diminishment of del Toro. But if you forget all of that and just say, I want a B movie with a demon kicking ass to heavy metal, I think that there is a lot of fun here. I think the supporting characters, really, more than David Harbour, who, again, is good but not given much to do and seems to be directed to do what Ron Perlman had already done better. I do think that what makes it most fun, Daniel Day Kim, Sasha Lane, and just some of the visuals and the bloodiness. And so, yeah, if you like Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness... 
you want a crude parody of Arthurian legend full of splatter and kung fu and bad jokes, this is it. And if you don't want that, then no, it won't convince you otherwise. It's not good enough to sell you on something if that's not what you want. But if you know you're the audience for this, yeah, don't listen to the haters. I think you'll like it okay. Yeah, that's kind of where I am. Did I have a hell of a good time? No. Did I have a hell of a bad time? No. I don't know that it, hell boy is a great Maybe heck boy? You know, it's like... Eh, what the heck? I'm air on the side of Green Arrow here. I felt like, as you said, the words bare minimum came to mind. I had a fun time. I think I can equate at least part of that to the soundtrack of hair metal music that I love and grew up with. I do think this Hellboy actor is fine as Hellboy. Is he going to be as iconic as Ron Perlman? Maybe if he gets a couple more movies, but in a first blush, I don't think he had the wonderful humor or embodied the character as well as Perlman did. Mia Jovovich, I didn't even recognize it was her. Ian McShane, we hardly knew ye, you're gone. But I liked Alice, I liked Damio, and I'm intrigued by what a sequel with Ghost Thomas Hayden Church might be like. I think they did enough to differentiate themselves from the previous one. They didn't bring back Abe Sapien, they didn't bring back Johan, they didn't bring back Liz. It felt different enough where basically you had the BPRD, you had Hellboy, and you had his dad. They didn't redo the origin story. I just feel like the movie feels chopped up, though. It is a little bit minced around, and it took a while for me to get into, and the look pulled me out of the movie a few times, but it was fine. I mean, I know a Rotten Tomato score, the lower it is, doesn't mean people hate it. It just means uh, less people like it. You know, kind of like us, they rate Green Arrow, Red Arrow, and if you're 90% of your critics are mild Red Arrow, that looks like a 10%. So I went in thinking, though, I'd talk to people at Star Wars Celebration who didn't like this film. I'd seen the Rotten Tomato score. I knew nothing else going in. And I'm like, eh. you know, maybe it's the benefit of low expectations, but I had a good enough time. It was better than I expected it to be based upon the trailers and the stills. Weak recommend. And what I would say is when it does come back as a TV series with an entirely new creative force, please don't do any of this stuff again. Like, just... Come up with new origins. Trust yourself to have ideas of planting a demon in a new way. And yeah, just capture the spirit and that will be fun to watch. But I don't want to see Rasputin again. I don't want to hear World War II. You think that they did enough to differentiate with Guillermo del Toro. I think the biggest problem I have with this movie is that it doesn't feel rebooted in a fresh new way. It feels like they split the difference and I could have used a lot more originality. It would have made me much more passionate about this vision instead of it feeling like not as good del Toro. I agree. I don't think we need to re-see anything del Toro did in these movies, at least not yet. You know, it's kind of like the Dark Knight, because Batman Begins had to establish this new Batman before you could start revisiting the Joker, who was the first villain of the last Batman continuity. I think this Hellboy still needs to establish his own identity a little bit more before you could go back to any of the stories that the first two movies hit. Or maybe it would only be the first movie, because the second movie was so del Toro, and if Mike Mignola is involved, I could see him going back to some of the origin stuff like the first film had. I don't see him going to any of the fantasy 
legacy of the second one. And I think we're all saying the same thing. We didn't agree about the order of the first two movies, but this is the worst of the three Hellboy movies. We would all rank this the weakest, although we're all giving it a green arrow. Yeah, I would say weakest. I, You know, worse. That makes it sound like I disliked it more than I did. Right. Nine green arrows in the series. Yeah, green arrow. I enjoyed it. I smiled throughout it. Yeah. But it is the weakest of the three. <laughs> Yeah, agreed. I have no attachment to it, and it's not just because it's the newest. I had an attachment to that first Hellboy the very first time I saw it. Oh, I went out and started reading Hellboy comics because of that first one. This one, I don't think would convince me to do the same. No, nothing about this makes it hit home. It feels like so many reboots we're discussing, we're not going to remember it in a few years, but everybody's still going to remember Del Toro. I remembered not liking Hellboy 2 because all I really wanted to see that summer was Dark Knight. And I'm like, just get this out of the way. And I think similarly, I would enjoy this movie if I had already seen Avengers Endgame. But come on, like that's the movie we all want to be discussing. And next week, we finally will. You have no idea how much I just wished I was going to the theater to see Endgame instead of Hellboy. I think it leaked out today on the internet, or at least some of it. You can go see it now. <laughs> some of it did. If you spoil it for me, I will kill you. I want to know nothing. I think I can do it. I'm off the internet enough that I think I can totally miss all of the major spoilers that are going to roll out. Plus, who believes what people say on the internet anyway? There's actual footage, though, that is leaked. I've not been able to find it, but actual footage is leaked. Okay, I thought you were saying the people that have seen it are talking, but if, if you can literally watch the movie, huh? I don't know, not the whole film, but like five minutes of footage that gives a lot away from what I understand. I'm excited. It's the movie I'm most looking forward to this entire year. The culmination of 22 movies, 11 years of excitement. 23 if you count the Inhumans. <laughs> Who does? I'm taking them out of the credits. We did. We went to theaters to see that. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Inhumans will no longer be in the opening credits of Avengers come Endgame. Thanos snapped <laughs> and the Inhumans went done to dust. <laughs> it was dust before Thanos ever got here. Anyway, if your kids are too small to watch that movie, that's probably the only people not going to the theater to see Endgame this weekend. But if you have real young ones, maybe five-year-old, six-year-old, not appropriate to see Endgame, maybe they'd enjoy Honey, I Shrunk the Kids instead. We are going to release a podcast this Friday. Might as well be that one. Maybe somebody wants to hear that. Groundbreaking 1989 film, according to you. Yeah, I, I'm actually going to argue that. If you listen to the show, you'll know why. Well... That's this Friday for our gold level donors. Patrons will more than likely get to hear Endgame uncut Saturday morning, as that's when we're recording it, and then out for everyone else next Tuesday. So thank you for listening, Stuart Jacob. Thank you for joining me. And until next time, go to hell, boy. a man a man a friend of mine once wondered is it his origins where he comes to life I don't think so it's the choices he makes not how he starts things but how he decides to end them Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Hellboy Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. What have you done? 
guess we're out. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Second date. No time. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Hellboy movies with other listeners. If there's trouble, all us freaks have is each other. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other comic book films, such as Batman vs. Superman, all Marvel's Avenger films, Spider-Man, X-Men, Blade, Watchmen, Daredevil, The Punisher, and Fantastic Four. I hate those comic books. They never get the eyes right. You can also listen to our reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. I black out after each episode, sometimes for hours. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. Well, come on in. Meet the rest of the family. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Let this remind you why you once feared the dog. Support from listeners like you. Help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. We die. And the world will be poor for it. Now Playing's Hellboy Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. What horrible will could keep such a creature as this alive? Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. We're going to talk all night because I'm really sleepy. Now Playing is not affiliated with Dark Horse Comics, Revolution Studios, or Columbia Pictures. Hellboy and all its contents are the intellectual property of those companies, and no infringement is intended. Oh, what? Are you threatening me? Because I think I can take you. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Hey, I can be discreet if I want to be. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2019, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Anything else you need? Not from you. Well, good night. Goodbye. And Hellboy is one of his agents. Things go to hell, though, when a pig-like fairy named Gru... <laughs> I, I have it. Gruagich. Gruagich. Things go to hell, though, when a pig-like fairy named Gruagich wants revenge on Hellboy for a previous attack. And to do this, he raises Nimue, played by Mia Jovovich, the blood queen who- Numei, right? Numei? Isn't it? Is you it? You just saw it. It's so fresh. I hate names. I didn't understand it when they were saying it in the movie. Yeah, I didn't either. I'm just like the blood queen. <laughs> Numei. Yeah, I was planning on just calling her the blood queen in this review. <laughs> <laughs> and to do this, he raises Numei, played by Mia Jovovich. At least I got Jovovich right. I'm not calling her Jovovich. Yet. 
probably like the fifth element. I'm like, am I going to even be able to understand her? I got to say, she's much more, uh, I can understand her now. Like, <laughs> that accent is not as thick as I remember it being. It's not even present in the Resident Evil movie. She's very intelligible. Okay. <laughs> but she's American. She is? Yeah. Okay, that explains her amazing American accent in Resident <laughs> yeah. Evil. Yeah, she's in Dazed and Confused. Yeah, there's. I, I, I don't think she's foreign, is she? I'm looking it up now. I can't. Yeah, now we need to sell it, because, I mean, I'm just going off a gut instinct. I never thought she was foreign. She was born in the Ukraine, which makes sense with a name like Jovovich. Okay, all right. Yeah, born in the USSR. Yeah, Kiev. Okay, all right. Yeah, I wasn't confident. Oh, she came here when she was five, though. Okay, I just think of her always having an accent, probably because of Fifth Element, where she talks weird. To differentiate themselves from the previous one by not having... Who was Seth MacFarlane's character? Klaus the... Uh, Klaus the ectoplasmic man. It was Klaus? Okay. I, um... Uh... No, because I thought Klaus was the fish. <laughs> oh, from American <laughs> Dad, maybe that's... Let me look it up real quick. Maybe that's what I'm uh, confusing it with. Golden Army. Johan. Johan. 